Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host. And today I have in real life, the real Kimberly Stevens on the show. This lady is amazing. She has an unbelievable story that will blow you away. So um, do me a favor and go ahead and share this out with everybody you know. Let's get a bunch of people on here and let's listen to Kimberly Stevens' life story and see if we can break through some walls. Hang on. are back. Let me bring Kimberly on. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Grateful to have you here. It's great to be here. (laughs) Look, Joe Ingram. Joe Ingram will put crazy comments in the comments, so just ignore him. (laughs) So, Kimberly, I met you at the retreat that we did over in Orlando. You are friends with Tim Story, and Tim told me the day that you were coming, he said, hey, I have a friend coming. I'm trying to sound like Tim Story. (laughs) He he says, "Um, I have a friend coming. Um, uh, I need you to be on the lookout for her. Um, Look, look, see what I mean? Ignore the Joe behind the curtain. Um, and, And so you came in. And I was like, you must be Kimberly. And you said, I am. And I said, Tim told me you were coming, got you a cup of coffee and took you out to Tim. So um, that's where we met. And I heard part of your story and I bought one of your books from you. And I was absolutely um, blown away by you and your story. So um, I I know that it's, um, it's been a painful journey for you at times. And I, I want you to share with the world your life and your story. So um, start with where you were born and raised. So I was born in a little town outside of Chicago called Hinsdale, Illinois. Hinsdale? Hinsdale, Illinois. Okay. Tiny and? known for swimming. What? It's known for swimming. In it's Chicago? Yes, and actually nationally. This year, the Hinsdale Central boys swim team is number one in the country again. Wow. Is that like H-I-N-S-D-A-L-E? Okay. okay. Um, So in Hinsdale, what was it like for you growing up as a child? What, what What was life like for you? It was just a small suburban town outside of Chicago. We barely ventured outside of our little town because we had everything we needed. And we had a train that could take us immediately to downtown Chicago, but we rarely ever did that. Wow. Like the subway train? 
No, the Metra train. Okay. Wow. Um, and you didn't go to Chicago much. Not often. Can't blame you. Can't can't say that I blame you. <laughs> My got... I had enough of it. So that's why you we what? were My dad grew up in the city and he'd had enough of it. So uh, that's why we were out in the burbs. Yeah, yeah. Well it's it's gotten it's gotten kind of kind of rough in parts of Chicago, I've heard. It really had a nice heyday back in the early 2000s, late 1990s. It was actually yeah. really quite nice. Yeah. So, so, um, what, like, you went to, I guess, grade school, middle school, high school in Hinsdale. Is that where you graduated? I did. I spent my entire life in one town, in one okay. house. Wow. And, it's pretty rare. Wow. Yeah. So did you, um, is that, uh, and I know you're a swimmer. Is that when you started swimming? I started swimming when I was nine. Okay. I was not good. Not good. Oh. And I wanted to quit. As a matter of fact, my first real meet was a bee meet. So you have bee movies and you have bee meets. So I'll leave the conclusions to you. Wow. And I went to that meet and driving home in the back of my mom's station wagon, there were six kids in the car. Five of them were showing off their giant rosette ribbons and one of them was not. I was the one. Wow. And I wanted to quit. <clears throat> wow. And did you? No, my parents would let me. They had purchased a team suit for me. So the deal was, we're buying you this team suit. You have to swim for a year. So I wasn't allowed to quit. So I made a decision. I decided I didn't like to lose. So I would figure out how to win. And talk about that. What? How did you figure it out? I worked hard. Um, it was not a, an instant uh, metamorphosis in the pool. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. It was gradual, and I had to learn a work ethic. I had to learn discipline. I had to pretty much learn how to swim, essentially. I remember one day I was at practice, and there was this girl, Heather Ostendorf. She is my inspiration. She was several years younger than me. She had this amazing kick and my coach was standing with me and he said, look at Heather's kick. Why don't you kick like that? I don't know. I didn't know that was the right way to kick. So from that moment on, I tried to kick like Heather and wow. it ended up being, that was the best part of my swimming going forward was my kick. So Heather, wow. thank you. Wow. So you, you, um, you're talking about when you kick your, I'm, I'm assuming yeah. Yeah. like, like I, I would have said to the coach, watch how I can kick you in the shin. <laughs> um, but so, so you, you learn how to, is that, I don't even know that is, I guess that plays a very important role in winning swim, swim matches or meets or whatever Absolutely. you call it. Races. 
races. Okay. And you're talking about just a regular swimming, right? Like freestyle. I'm a freestyler. What's that mean? I don't know what that means. Uh, front crawl. Some people might know it as. I know how to doggy paddle. Okay. Yep. That counts. <laughs> that counts. So, so, so you, you started swimming. Um, and I know that you've been doing this like now your entire life. So, so you started swimming and then did, I guess that carried on through high school. I'm assuming. So I swam through high school. I swam through college. Okay. Then I took a long break about 20 years. And then I went back and started swimming in masters in my forties. Wow. Wow. Did you go to, did, did you get a scholarship for swimming? I did. And there's wow. actually a story back to that because I almost blew my scholarship. So senior year in high school, my team was slated to win the team championship. Hinsdale is a powerhouse in the swimming world. And I was seated to, well, I was seated first in the 50 free and the 100 free. And then I was also part of relays that would contribute to our overall team points. Right. And so here it is, it's final state meet. I'm a senior and pretty much my entire scholarship, college career, everything is riding on my performance at this swim meet. Right. And I was barely 17 because I was just, I was a year ahead in grade wise. So yeah. I was essentially a baby. And I got up there for the 50 free and got up on the blocks. Starter says, take your mark. And I dove before he shot the gun. In those days, the false start got charged to the heat. The first one. Wow. So we all caught, got called back and we got back up on the blocks. Take your mark. And I dove. Again. Yes. And I was disqualified. Ouch. Yes. So all that went through my head was I can't face my team. I just blew our chance to win the state championship. I blew my chance for a scholarship. I'm a complete failure and I need to run out the back door and never be heard of again. And Did you do that? Fortunately, no. I <laughs> Carol Bobo, I know you're out there. She literally grabbed me and took me in the locker room. And the 100 freestyle was then there was one event before the 100 freestyle, and that was diving, a little bit of a longer event. So yeah. I had about 30 minutes to collect myself. And she took me in the locker room, and I was sobbing, and I had absolutely blown it. And she basically said, it's over. The past is gone. You have a job to do. And you need to do it in 15 minutes. And she talked me through it, helped me cry through it. And 15 minutes later, I went back out on the pool deck. And the whistle blew. And I stood up on the blocks. And I was not going to fall start. <laughs> and... So I had a slow start. And when you're talking tenths of hundreds of seconds uh, that races are won and lost by, yeah. a slow start can cost you the race. 
Right. So I didn't win. I got second. And and this is in the hundred hundred freestyle. Hundred what? 100, 100 miles. Hundred yards. <laughs> okay. Hundred yards. It's about a fifty-second race. Oh and wow! Wow. So that second was set for me. But what I didn't know was that it was a prophecy almost about how my life would go. And later I ended up signing with the University of Iowa and I did attend Iowa on a swimming scholarship and I set Big Ten records and had a few a few wins, a few victories. Wow. But the coach, I asked him later why he would sign me after I did what I did, complete absolute disaster in high school state meet. Yeah. And his response was, when I saw you come back in the hundred, I knew you were a person who was resilient, who could persevere. I knew you were a survivor. And those words have never left my mind. I might've put them to sleep for several years, yeah, I had to pull them out later in my life as I was going through the rest of my story. So was there a, a, um, was there a college that you wanted more than, than Iowa when, when you, um, were in, and a senior in high school, was there like, I hope I get Ohio that, State, probably Ohio State would have been your preference, I, I would imagine. No, I <laughs> Ohio State, thank you. Wow. Go, Go Bucks. Go Bucks. <laughs> Go Blue. <laughs> Ooh, what? Thanks for being a guest. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> hey, oh I went God. to Iowa, so I'm black and gold. So uh, Yeah. Um, there were a lot of schools that were pursuing me and they did not give up pursuing me after my performance at the state meet. Wow. Um, the reason I chose Iowa was because I loved the coach and more importantly, I loved Iowa city. I loved Iowa. People were so different. You know, I grew up in a, in a nice little town, Yeah. but in Iowa, I call it Iowa nice. People are just kind and they went out of their way to yeah. talk to me and be warm and receiving. And I loved that culture. Yeah, it's definitely not the same as Chicago. <laughs> definitely not. Yeah. So, so, and I get that. We, we moved to Texas and that's one of the primary reasons people are just so polite and kind here. So, so you go through college, you, um, said that you set big 10 records. I am a big 10 fan. Um, so you set big 10 records. You, um, I mean, there couldn't be a whole lot more to do in Iowa than swim. <laughs> so I literally spent a month in Des Moines, Iowa one time. And I was like, so what, what, what do you guys like, what do you do for fun here? Like this is like, there's nothing to do. Everything closed at like nine o'clock. 
I you need like, to come to Iowa City on a football weekend. And oh, okay. Got it. Well, Texas kind of has, you know, football's like pretty big here. But so so you go through um college and what was your major in? It wasn't swimming, right? What was your My major, major was in French and business and I was about 4 hours short of a Russian minor. My my wife majored in French. And what does she do now? She works with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, I actually wanted to go to law school and oh, uh, wow. go into international law. Wow. And okay. I ended up going on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ instead. Wow. Okay. So after you graduated, that's what you did? Yes. How, how they, they pay you for that? We had to raise our own support. So I used to describe it to our um, supporters that Campus Crusade has a shoebox. And if you send money and the shoebox has money in it at the end of the month, then they pay us. Oh, wow. Wow. How long did you do that? We did that about four and a half years. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So um, where did things go for you from there? Well, I met my husband mm -hmm. uh, within about five minutes of being on staff with uh, crew, as they call it now. Mm -hmm. And we got married 11 months after we met. Okay. And we were serving at San Diego State University. And then in the summers, we had the option to have a different assignment. So we went to Paris and spent a good four months in Paris uh, in ministry. And at that time, I was newly pregnant with my first child, Brayden. And he was born um, two days before Christmas in 1991. Wow. In Paris? No, we had come home in September. Hold it. And this was all for the Crusades for Christ? Crew. Campus Crusade, yes. Okay. Um, but you did that in Paris? We did. Uh, at a different university or? We were in the Cité Universitaire and we were living in Dutch House. And we were reaching out to students, international students. Okay. So... Um, you came back to, you said to the States, where did you come back to? You were in Diego time. Hold on. I, I, you're breaking up a little bit. What was that? San Diego. Oh, San Diego. I love San Diego. I do too. Carlsbad. Oh, I was just out there recently. Um, so, and that's where your, your first child was born. Yes. Okay. Um, and how long did you stay in San Diego? We were in San Diego until 1995. Okay. So talk about what happened next in your life. So my son, Brayden Michael, he was perfect when he was born. And about six days into his life, things just went a little south. He got really crabby and fussy and 
inconsolable and then he stopped eating and then he got very, very sleepy and lethargic. And we had him to see a lactation specialist. We had him with the pediatrician. And then on a Sunday, and this was between Christmas and New Year's because he was born two days before Christmas. Uh, he just was breathing kind of funny. And so instead of going to sleep, I pulled him out of his bassinet and I just laid him on my chest and I didn't go to sleep. And I just kept listening to his breathing. Mm. Had I gone to sleep, he would have died. A couple hours into this labored breathing, um, I woke up my mom and I just asked her to listen to him. And she said, that's not right. You need to call the doctor immediately. So right. we called the doctor back and she said, you need to get him to Children's Hospital. In the three minutes it took to actually talk to her, he stopped inhaling after he was exhaling. And so I would kind of jostle him to um, get him to wake back up and take a breath. And when I knew we had to get him into the ER, I ran, packed his bag really quickly. I think I was gone maybe two minutes and grabbed him, got in the car, sat in the back seat with him so that I could continue to make sure he inhaled. Wow. And his dad was driving to the hospital. It was about a 20 minute drive. And in about 10 minutes after we got in the car, Brayden stopped breathing altogether. And I pulled him out of his seat and I put him in my lap and I was just doing mouth to mouth and trying to keep him alive. And it was the longest 10 minutes of my life. We got to the hospital. I jumped out of the car with him and ran him up to the window and said, he's not breathing. And they came, they grabbed him, and they put him on life support. And basically, is there anybody you can call? And um, we called our pastor. We called some friends. Um, and they said if he survived the first 24 hours, he'd be fine. Well, he survived the first 24 hours, but nobody knew what was wrong with him. And he was 13 days old. It was actually New Year's Day when the diagnosis came in. He was diagnosed with citrullinemia, which What's is it a called? rare citrullinemia and okay. excess of citrulline. It is in the family of your disorders. Uh your your yeah. internet your internet's breaking up a little bit, Kimberly. Um it's it, in the family of what? Urea cycle disorders. Okay. And we found out that there were probably two to four children born in the world per year with citrullinemia. Wow. And possibly 200 children born in the world with urea cycle disorders. And that was a family of disorders that included seven other diseases. And the disease is such that genetically he was born without a little tiny enzyme that processes protein. So protein would go into his body, into the urea cycle, and it would stop at stage two. 
and it would that protein was nitrogen it would build up in his system as nitrogen or ammonia oh. and high ammonia levels cause irritability lethargy coma brain damage and death the higher the ammonia and the longer it sits in the body the more damage it causes wow so essentially my milk had poisoned him when it came in and that's why he was doing so well at the beginning um, and it just took a little bit of time for the poisons to build up in his system oh my god so we started medications and we were able to get his ammonia level down um but as soon as we fed him again his ammonia level spiked and they gave him very very heavy doses of the medication now mind you there's no kids that we have any experience what we had at that time right. and so we were just stabbing blind in the dark and the doctors obviously had some experience but most of these kids didn't live and so they gave him very very heavy doses of the medication to bring his ammonia level down and unfortunately that killed all of his organs and he ended up dying from kidney failure oh my god i'm so sorry wow yeah thank you <clears throat> um and they didn't realize at that moment at that time they didn't realize it was your milk causing we did we knew it was protein oh um, but you have to have protein to live if we don't eat protein our bodies will grab it from our muscles and it's called catabolism you and i go into that whenever we get sick if we just skip a meal um, it is something that is very natural in order to get out of catabolism. You just go eat a lot of protein and your body stops breaking itself down. Well, for Brayden, in order to get him out of catabolism, we had to give him protein, which then overloaded his system further. And it's called a catabolic, catabolic spiral. And we spiraled out. So he, he passed, you said, was it 13? He, he was, was 15 days old when he passed. Oh my goodness. And my world ended. I cannot imagine. Um, I can't imagine what you, what you experienced emotionally. Like that's tragic. There were very, very dark days. I went, probably eight months before I could even see the sunshine again. And I lived in San Diego, one of the sunniest places on earth. And it was rough. There were days when I wanted to just scream to the world. How can you laugh? Don't you know my son is dead? And one of the cruelest things about grief and loss is that it's personal. Yeah. And the world keeps going on. The globe keeps spinning and life goes on. Yeah. It feels very cruel to the person who has experienced loss. Wow. So 
Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and say that that probably didn't do much for your marriage. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It's very, very difficult. Grief is very personal and yeah. it's very hard to share what's really going on in our hearts, even with ourselves. Sometimes being honest with ourselves is the hardest thing. But then to be honest with a spouse and to want him to have experienced the loss the same way I did. Right. And, you know, there were nine months where I carried Brayden and we were attached. I was never away from him. Right. And it was not the same for Brayden's dad. Right. And, and, and you're also going through um the the there's a significant amount of hormonal changes that occur after giving birth to a child Absolutely. as well um so what's that called post postpartum Partum. yeah so you're going through that and oh my gosh let me ask you a question because i would imagine I can't imagine, honestly, I can't. I don't think anybody that hasn't experienced that can say, well, I, I can relate. No, no way. There's no way. Um, but I would be pissed off at God. <laughs> I, mean, I would be like, dude, we're done. Like I'm, I'm over you. I, I, I can't, I can't even imagine. You are spot on. And I was very, very angry with God. And it didn't start out that way. At first, I, I felt I needed God's comfort. Yeah. But then I needed, I needed more than that. I yeah. needed, I needed him to tell me why I needed him to give me a good enough reason that this had to happen and asking why fueled my anger and i never got the answer i still don't have the answer i know right. that some good things have come out of it much later however asking why and getting stuck in asking the why is what kept me in the darkness for eight months. And it was one day in August that I remember I actually walked into a chapel and I said I was not coming out until I had made peace with this. And the answer came to me so clearly that if Jesus himself sat down and handed me a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or a shot of tequila and said, Kimberly, this is why. It would not have taken away my pain. So Jesus carries tequila around. I don't know, but I, <laughs> he, he needed it. I needed it at that point in time. I think. Yeah. Um, wow. Wow. And wow. Wow. Once I realized 
that there was no answer good enough, then I was able to lay down my anger and receive some comfort and some healing. And it was the diving moment of that tragedy. Did you, I, I, again, these are almost rhetorical questions and I, I'm sorry if it seems insensitive in any way, it's not the intention. Um, did you, did you blame yourself because you found out that it was your, your milk that was. Absolutely. But formula would have done it. Oh, thing would have done it. Anything that had protein. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, if, if protein is what, what takes the life of a baby with that condition, ha, I mean, are they just doomed or is there, is there a, is there a cure of any kind? I mean, so there's a very sophisticated balance that needs to be created in these children. It has to be created immediately. In our case, we did not have the benefit of a diagnosis for my son. So we were not able to treat him in order to save his life. Okay. And so go back to that chapel. And this, were you still in San Diego? We were, we were actually at our summer, uh, seminary, uh, classes. Okay. Um, and then we would go back to San Diego state in September. So are are you like, you're like an ordained minister? No. Oh, (laughs) I have taken quite a few seminary classes, Okay. Okay. but I don't have any Bible degrees, if you will. Okay. Eric that's on here, he's, he was in Grow Live Academy last night. Um, he's, he's an ordained minister actually. Yep. We've spoken. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, so it's a fine, it's a balance that, that you, uh, so, okay. Is your son, is your, is he, is he buried in San Diego then? He is buried in Orange County, California. Okay. Okay. Um, Newport beach. actually. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So you were still in San Diego. You were at the, um, chapel, go back to the chapel. Mm -hmm. So the chapel, you know, if I put it back into a sense of swimming and, and that story and the prophecy really that I was someone who could persevere that moment in the chapel was when I, laid down my anger and i i walked out i was always kim before that moment and i changed my name to kimberly yeah after that moment and for me that signified that kim looked back in anger and kimberly would go forward with hope kimberly would swim the hundred free and in this case it meant that i would have more children even though there was a one in four chance for me, for each of my children, 
that they would be born with this disease. So this is a genetic thing. Okay. Yep. Wow. Wow. So we started trying to have more children and I had three miscarriages and back to back to back. Jeez. And then in March of 1993, I found out I was pregnant with uh, my daughter. Okay. And they wanted us to do prenatal testing immediately and find out if she would be born with the disease. Right. And I was so afraid to do any early testing that could put my pregnancy at risk that I said no. I thought I would do something once the baby what is. Wait, wait, and wait. So your your internet, your internet froze up. You you what? Say it start. I wanted to do a prenatal test only once the baby was viable. So oh, that okay. if if something happened, she could still live. What do they test yeah. like the amniotic fluid or what do they test? It's that is what they did for me. They okay. tested the amniotic fluid at 34 weeks. Okay. And okay. we found out that she was going to be a girl. And we named her Victoria Faith, which I'm about to cry. Oh. Um, her name means conqueror through faith. Wow. And two weeks after the amnio, we were given the clean bill of health. And it was a celebration that... I can't even explain. And for the first time in nine months, I was able to look forward and buy pink things and get very, very excited about the fact that I was going to finally have a baby. And she was born. She was absolutely beautiful. And um, they did some backup testing. And um, was about she was about three days old and i'm not sure why all my children are born around holidays but she was actually due on thanksgiving day came a couple days early but it was appropriate and um the tuesday after thanksgiving i realized we hadn't heard anything about her backup tests and so i called this lab at ucsd medical center and it was not just the regular lab. This was a very world-renowned clinician who was ordering special testing and running tests that no lab in the world could possibly run. And I called the lab and they said, well, we don't have any samples. And I said, mm, yes, you do. And it took about 20 minutes of me pretty much arguing. And they said, oh, we found something in the back. They did come in by courier, like you said, on Saturday at such and such a time. They have to be your daughters. Great. Can you run them, please? Wow. So they ran them. And I got off the phone with them at about 11 that morning. And at about 3.30, my mother-in-law was sitting holding Tori, as we called her, and the phone rang and Tori's dad answered the phone and it was my OB 
And I remember thinking, oh, that's so nice. He's calling to check in on us. Then I started listening to the rest of the conversation. And even though I only heard half of it, I heard UCSD Medical Center, ICU immediately. Oh, God. And I walked over to my baby and grabbed her out of my mother-in-law's arms, held her to my heart and sobbed. Ugh. And I said, I am not going to believe this until we see an ammonia level. This is not possible. This will not happen to me a second time. And we did the whole packing thing and the deja vu. I was sitting in the back seat with her as we were driving her to the ICU. Holy and the whole time, I just kept saying, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I refuse to believe this. This is not happening. And we got her to Ugh. the ICU, stripped her down to her diaper. They started lines, drew blood, and I went into the pumping room. Now, here's the irony. It is my milk that will poison her. And here I am in the pumping room because it was obviously time to release some milk. And... I couldn't feed her until we got her diagnosis back. Good Lord. And so I finished pumping and I came out and the labs had come back and her ammonia level was 260 and normal ammonia is up to 60. It oh confirmed the diagnosis. She had central anemia. Good Lord have mercy. And I turned around and I walked back into the pumping room. I dumped out the milk I had just saved. And I said, I'm not, I'm not doing it again. I'm done. She's going to die. I'm done. And I wanted to leave the building. I wanted to run away. I wanted to quit. Wow. And I finished dumping the milk out. And I walked back out to her bedside. And our pastor's wife was there. Janie. And I started crying and I said, she's going to die. And again, that was a diving moment. Janie turned around. Her focus had been on Tori and she turned around and she grabbed me by the shoulders and she was this close to my face. And she said, you do not give up on this baby. This is not Brayden. This is Victoria Faith. And I just got chills saying that because that moment and those words spoken through Janie were exactly what I needed to hear in order to get back on the blocks and swim the hundred free. Wow. And for Tori going forward, I pumped my milk for nine months. We made a special formula. I had a lab in my kitchen. I had to take the milk to a laboratory every two weeks and they would find out the exact protein content of it. And Good then I had to do math in order to calculate the protein and calorie content and absorbability of the formula I was making. And then we had to feed her an exact volume of food every day that was mixed with medication. Jiminy Christmas. 
every time the balance was thrown off and that could have been through an ear infection or the fact that she didn't eat enough the day before or growth or anything, I had to take her for an ammonia level. And so we had, I don't know, thousands and thousands of blood draws. And depending on what the ammonia level was, we would either be admitted to the hospital or we would go home and play around with the calculations of her formula. Or um, there were times that we were admitted directly into the ICU because she was uh, going into a coma. Oh, my God. And Going into what? A coma? Coma. A coma. A coma. Good Lord. Uh. So we lived this way for four years. Oh, my God. In the middle of those four years, almost exactly, when she was two, just four, uh, we moved to Chicago. And I gave birth immediately after moving to Chicago to my third living child. And he's Daniel because he went through the lion's den of citral anemia and did not get the disease. Wow. As soon as we moved to Chicago, we had to switch our doctors and things were, Tori's growth was slowing down naturally because you go from being 10 pounds your first year to being 20 or 25 and um, your growth doubles. And the faster the growth for these kids and the faster the metabolism, the better they do. And so as her growth started slowing down, it created new challenges in her diet and she grew very, very sick. And between Thanksgiving and Christmas of that year, we spent six weeks in the hospital and she was in a coma. Oh my God. For about four of those weeks. And every time we would have an episode, be it a small blip in an ammonia level or a large blip that would literally physically put her in a coma. Um, I would hear further brain damage. And she developed completely normally, walked at 11 months, everything was great. And then at about 18 months, I can look back and I can see pictures where her eyes just completely died and she looks hollow. Wow. And she stopped talking, she stopped babbling. Um, And so she became locked in a world of citral anemia and chemicals. And um, and the story goes on. Obviously, there are thousands of episodes that I could talk about. Right. Right. But suffice it to say, she was in comas multiple times um, and came out of it every single time. We had a significant moment in 1997 in the summer where it was very difficult to keep her stable. And she was this specialist medication that I had to order from directly the manufacturer in Japan. And I ordered her medication always with plenty of time to account for shipping delays or things like that. But I did not account for UPS going on strike that summer. And we were down to about a two-day supply of her medications. 
And without that medication that was stuck in a truck in New Jersey, she would be in a coma in six hours. Oh my God. And I didn't know what to do. And it was another diving moment. Oh my God. And I called my cousin who worked for the CBS affiliate in Houston. And I said, Scott, you have to tell me how to write a press release. And so he did. He taught me over the phone and someone had given me a press guide months before that I had filed in my office and didn't know what I was going to use it for. But now I did. And so I wrote a press release. UPS strike threatens toddler's life. And then I wrote a little blurb about Tori. And then I faxed it to back in the days of the fax machine. <laughs> yeah. What's fax- that? I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> right. Fax- I faxed it everywhere. And it was picked up by newspapers, radio, and TV. And Judy Garcia, God bless her, saved my daughter's life. She was working for the ABC affiliate in Chicago. She picked up the story and she went straight to the workers in their strike lines. What? You know this little girl is going to die because her medicine is in your truck. And... I still have this story and the clip. She was absolutely fearless and brilliant. And she saved my daughter's life. And when UPS saw that story, they made a statement from the very top. And they said, this brings to light a new problem that we hadn't thought about. And they tracked down her medication. It was $2,000 of... uh, an order. And not only did they deliver it to us in a huge press conference, they paid the $2,000. Then they ordered us another box just to be sure. Wow. Paid for that and promised we would have it in our hands within a week. Did they, did they use FedEx? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Wow. Ah. I'm sit- uh, okay. I'm sitting here on the edge of tears this entire time. Wow. 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 Wow, wow is right. And my, that, there's my wife. She's listening. <laughs> wow. Holy crap. You guys, uh, you guys could probably have a conversation in French, by the way. I can't, but she can. Sounds I would love that. Then we could talk about you and you wouldn't know. What we're <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, my God. So, oh, my gosh, Kimberly. Wow. Um, so go. Uh, I, I, I want to back up a little bit. I can't believe we've already been on here 51 minutes almost. That's crazy. Um. Like, I feel like you just started talking. So, so go back to, cause this happened, like the, I don't want to glaze over this. You had another child along the way. You had your son. I did. Yes. Is it his name? Samuel? Daniel. Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. Daniel oh, the lion's den. Yes. Um, so and and how, how old was Victoria when you had Daniel? So Daniel was born in October of 1995 and Victoria would have turned two in November. Okay. Of 
1995. So she was about 22 months. Okay. And when she was about a year old, we were in the hospital and we had our five metabolic specialists talking about her. And I had said something to her because they were talking amongst themselves and it was kind of uncomfortable. And so I was just talking to Tori and I said something about um, needing to take out a dirty diaper. And I said, oh, I cannot wait until you're potty trained. And probably about the time you're potty trained, you'll have a brother or sister. Well, my least favorite of the metabolic specialists, whom I affectionately called Fred Flintstone, (laughs) opened his mouth and he said, what? You're going to have another child? And she's not going to live long enough to be potty trained. He said that? Yes. Wow. And this is a doctor? Yes. And that was all I needed, truthfully. That was all I needed because I stopped and I looked at him straight in the face and I said, I will have another child. He won't have citrullinemia. And you all five, I looked at the all five doctors. I said, you all five are invited to Tori's high school graduation. Ah. Look what Jill said. (laughs) Oh, my God. What in the world? Um, Okay, so, so, um, holy crap. Um, So, where did things go from from there? I mean, I know, and and I, I have a spoiler alert. Tori is alive and well, (laughs) doing very well. Yep. She's 29 and married and has a full-time job and lives in Kansas city. And she's as normal as they come. And we still have this, this, this. So we were very fortunate. Um, When things grew very bad for her after the UPS uh, issues, um, it was just her body slowing down and growth and we couldn't keep her stable. And we were in the hospital constantly and we couldn't get out and we couldn't get off IV medications. And so our metabolic specialist in Chicago sat us down and said, we have successfully transplanted one other uh, urea cycle child. And transplanted? I transplanted. What do they transplant? Mm-hmm. We'll get there. Oh. And so she she basically said, I think you owe it to your daughter to consider this option. And so we, we had heard that a liver transplant could cure this disease, but we were also afraid that we would be trading one problem for another liver rejection and medications. And so it was not a decision that we took lightly, but because my daughter was so unstable, we really felt like if we did nothing, she was going to die. So if we were going to die, we decided we were going to die trying. And wow. so we put her on the list. Um, How old was she at that point? Almost four. Okay. And we did a Make-A-Wish trip, and that was absolutely amazing. We came back from our trip, and she went active on the list. And 23 days later, we got the phone call. Oh my gosh. And it was a four-year-old child. 
And my heart broke when we got the phone call because I know another family had to lose their, I believe it was a son, um, in order for my baby to have hope of living. And we went forward with the transplant. They removed a perfectly healthy liver from Tori. It just couldn't make an enzyme that processes protein. And they replaced in her body a new liver that could make that enzyme. And so in that way, a brand new liver cured her disease. Oh my gosh. Now this miracle of transplant was such a miracle in so many ways because up to this point, Tori had stopped talking. I didn't know what her favorite color was. She was almost four. She she said Elmo and really not much else. And my neighbor who was a special ed teacher described her as a butterfly that would just flit from thing to thing to thing. She never stopped and paid attention to anything. I think because chemically she was so imbalanced. Right, right. And so she had her transplant and we were waiting for her to recover and wake up from the transplant. And when she woke up, she spoke in full sentences. Oh my God. And it was so amazing. The surgeons still talk about it as one of the greatest transformations they've ever seen. Wow. You're not going to make me go into full burst tears here. So it's not like, wow. I I mean, I'm sitting here emotionally distraught at the moment. (laughs) Um, Wow. Kimberly, that is amazing. And from that point forward, she was, she lived it. She's been. We spent a good 10 years catching her up right physically emotionally um socially um and and intellectually yeah um so she was call it four when she was transplanted and really she did not catch up to grade level until her freshman year in high school and it was a lot of hard work on her part she did score learning center huntington learning center she had tutors she it was it was a long journey. And how did you I want to I want to I want to how did you um a lot of people there's hey there's Nick Lowry. <laughs> hey Morning. Nick. How you doing man? Good to see you brother. Um and, and my wife said did <laughs> No, but her colleague did. He, <laughs> he called me in January of 2012 and he said, oh, hi. And he was always very awkward. We called him Dr. Seuss. And, <laughs> but he was wonderful. He was warm and kind always. And oh he said gosh. on my voicemail, he said, oh, hi, this is Dr. Nyan. And I've had 2012 on my calendar for wow. 16 years. And he said, I would like to come to your daughter's high school graduation. Wow. 
And I called him back and I was so touched that he wanted to be there. And he said, these kids don't do this. Wow. I want to be there. Wow. And he was 87 at the time. Good Lord. From San Diego to Chicago. Wow. And we treated him as one of our guests of honors. And one of my favorite pictures from my daughter's graduation party, which by the way, I did go back and I found Judy Garcia. I found her preschool teachers who experienced the ups and downs and near death moments that Tori endured. Um, I found everybody and we had a giant party. It felt more like a wedding than a graduation party. Wow. And one of my favorite moments was both her doctor from San Diego and then her doctor from Chicago, Dr. Barbara Burton, whom I absolutely dearly love. I have a picture of Tori standing between them. And then both Dr. Burton and Dr. Nyan um, <laughs> spoke and talked about um, what a miracle it was for all of us to be there. And then we passed the microphone around and everybody spoke something about a memory, about what a miracle it was that we wow. could be there to celebrate that. Wow. How, how did you, I, I, I just have to know because, you know, um, other people who go through, the, not everybody, of course, but, you know, a lot of people that go through um, losing a child, which you did, um, almost losing a child multiple, many, many, many times, it sounds like, um, how did you how did you not resent god or life or how did you not like say why me why me why me why my child why my children why me how did you not cuz I, I maybe you did maybe there were periods of time when you did i i don't know but how how because i know you now today well and, and, um, you're an amazing lady. How did you get to this place in your life where you literally live from a place of, I can tell gratitude. It happened in the chapel. Really? It happened in the chapel and God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And when I get to those moments, those why me? those woe is me oh i'm doomed if with you know i have said a few times if it weren't for bad luck i'd have no luck at all what a terrible thing to say yeah over myself absolutely not i reject that a hundred percent um i just looked at my child my children and i was grateful I was so happy. Tori was born and we got the diagnosis and Fred Flintstone actually said she won't live a week. Mm, geez. And she did. And she was a happy, beautiful baby who met every milestone on time, some early until she was about 18 months. 
And it was such a miracle. And to, to not be grateful in that moment, looking at my child who was doing so much better than anyone could have hoped or predicted. And we were breaking ground. There was no standard protocol treatment. Now I look on Facebook and I, and I see the urea cycle community and I, I cheer them on with all of my heart. Uh, but, but they have the benefit of what we were doing back in the early 1990s. And we were breaking ground. And so I was grateful it, that it, we got one more minute. Is this is this one hundred percent caused by the liver not creating an en- enzyme? It's a genetic. Is it one hundred percent? Like that's yes. what causes this particular yes. thing. Yes. Wow. So is the is the cure a transplant? Yes. There okay. are a lot of families, and that's what I see on the urea cycle disorder Facebook page now and in the yeah. group. They're wondering, um, do I transplant right now at, you know, as soon as the baby's big enough to be transplanted or, you know, do we wait and try to medically manage? And it's, it's a type of, and nobody can really tell you when is the right time to transplant or if transplant is the right thing. These disorders vary in their severity. Yeah. And they also vary according to our metabolism rates and our growth rates. And wow. It's really how many people are in that Facebook group? I'm just curious. There are a couple hundred. Wow. Wow. Your story is just unbelievable. Um, What you have. I don't want to say endured, but that might be a good word. Um, and yes, to to um, Nick Lowry, the Hall of Fame Kansas City Chiefs place kicker. He is he is a great great guy. Um, you you recently published a book, and we're yes. going to talk about that. We I'm going to give you full screen. Hold on. Go. No, hold it up. Hold it up. <laughs> Altered. And, and it's finding hope through grit and gratitude to never give up. Right. Um, altered, meaning the course of your life was altered. <laughs> you think? Um, <laughs> and this is my daughter, by the way. And he's on the beach in Coronado in San Diego. Hold on, pull, hold that back up so everybody can see it. How old is she there? About 18 months. Wow. What you don't see, uh, she has a feeding tube, uh, ah. an NG, nasal gastric feeding tube in this picture, but it's too blurred on purpose. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So talk about the book. Why did you write the book? What's the book about? What's the reader of the book going to um, walk away and be able to apply in their own life? So the book is really a memoir. Um, It goes much more into detail about my son and urea cycle disorders, my daughter and her story. It also then fast forwards a little bit, which we didn't even get to in that I was diagnosed with a rare breast cancer 
and survived that only to end up because of all of my debt, losing my car, my possessions and my home to foreclosure. And so it starts and ends with the idea of the only way to beat these things is to go through the pain. And again, that diving moment when we're stayed diagnosis, we just lost our son, whatever it is, that moment when we literally have to stop and think and realize that we have to get back up on the blocks in 15 minutes and swim the hunger free. And the entire book is about that moment. And what do you do? How do you get there? And so I asked several questions at the end of the different sections. I was very honest about my feelings and my my grief, if you will. Yeah. Um, I also find a lot of comfort in music. And so I put a playlist in the book that the songs are appropriate to the chapters. Wow. Um, and really my heart in sharing so honestly and openly in my book is because I want somebody who is grieving or hurting, who has not been able to give themselves the space to be in the pain for a moment I want them to be able to read my story and maybe cry some tears for me because in doing that, I think it frees them to release their own pain. And if we just can release a little bit of that pain, Mm. hope can get into the crack and we just need a little bit of hope to get back on the blocks. Wow. What if they're not swimmers? <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. It's a universal concept. It's just right? a metaphor. I love it. I love it. Kimberly, you are a rock star. I have a feeling that you're going to heal a lot of people in the world with, um, with your, um, your pain and your 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 triumph over that pain i i you know eric is on here nay in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us amen amen eric acting like a preacher and stuff what's that all about i'm kidding you're amazing thank you i i, I don't even like I'll ask you this. What do you think stops people from having it all in life? Financial success, freedom, happiness, joy, all of the stuff. What do you think holds people back? The diving moment. If we can, we can numb our pain, we can run out of the building, we can avoid it. 
we can deny it, but until we are willing to face it, we don't go forward. Wow. Kimberly Stevens, everybody. Follow her everywhere. KimberlyJStevens.com, which I've heard is getting a makeover. A much needed makeover. Thank you, Ken. Thank Um, you for allowing me to share my story today. And I do hope, even though it is a little bit of a sad story, the ending is great. And I do hope it can encourage someone, anyone today. It it has, it will, and this will live, it'll it'll stay. This interview will be out there for the masses to hear. And I think it's so important because, you know, I think the greatest pain that any human can can endure is is the loss of a child. I, I cannot, like I've said, I I cannot um Sandy says hope is Kimberly's message. Yes, it is. I can't imagine that, but you've, you've, you have, you've endured it. You've gotten through it. You've come to the other side and you're a ray of light and hope for the world to see and, and, and to, to live off of like to grow from. So thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for writing your book. Thank you for the opportunity. So everybody head over to Amazon and pick up a copy of Kimberly's book, Altered, A-L-T-A-R apostrophe D, Altered. That The significance of that is the shift for you came at the altar in that chapel. Correct. Yeah. That's so powerful. And Altar is all capitals because it's about God. And the apostrophe D is small letters because it's about me. Wow. So, so, so powerful. Thank you, Kimberly Stevens. This is priceless. I'll be a preacher when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're amazing. So thank you. I'm going to end the live stream now, but everybody make sure you go grab a copy of Kimberly's book. And follow her everywhere on Facebook, Instagram, everywhere. Um, look her up and follow her. You're on LinkedIn, I believe. Yes. Um, follow Kimberly everywhere. And um, stand by because some great things are, are happening for Kimberly. She's going to be making an even bigger impact in this world. So y'all make sure you follow her and keep an eye out for her. Kimberly, God bless you. And thank you for coming on here today and and sharing your wisdom and your strength with everybody. It's my pleasure. You. And we will see you all later. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much.